Welcome to the sermon podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ crucified and the promises of God that our faith clings to. For more information, visit us online at faithlutheranoregon.com. One thousand nine hundred and sixty-nine. That's about how many steps it likely was between the gate of the triumphal entry and the probable location of uh, Mount Calvary, the place of Jesus' crucifixion. It would take you about 18 minutes to walk from one to the other. Uh, For reference, because I know you're all thinking it, that's about uh, from here to the new Culver's. 1,969 steps. How could Jesus go from being praised and welcomed triumphantly on Palm Sunday into the city and then just a few days later, just a short distance away, be hung on a tree? As Jesus was going along the way, down the path from the Mount of Olives, and up the path into Jerusalem, into the city, uh, under under the gate, What were Jesus' thoughts? You know, most illustrations you see of Palm Sunday, uh, everybody is happy and joyful. They're excited, including Jesus. But Luke's gospel actually lets us know that Jesus was, in fact, weeping. He was weeping. Jesus knew that Jerusalem did not know the things that made for her peace. The children and those singing Hosanna, those pilgrims who who had come from outside Jerusalem for the Passover, are of course the exception. They trust Jesus as their Savior. They're shouting Hosanna, which means save us. But it seems everybody else in Jerusalem just thinks uh, Jesus is there to solve other problems, political problems, uh, or, or, or they just want to get rid of him. On Palm Sunday... Uh, or for that matter, any other time along Jesus' steps of his passion, even from his baptism at the Jordan, any time from that time on, Jesus could very well have been thinking or praying Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is spoken by a man who is traveling along a path, and he's having difficulty concentrating. Maybe literally or metaphorically, his feet have almost stumbled, his, his steps have nearly slipped. As he goes along, he, he contemplates how the wicked seem to prosper, but the innocent suffer. He says the ungodly are at ease, they suffer no plague, they have more than enough. But he is plagued all day long, he suffers even the pangs of death, even while living. Psalm 73 asks the same moral question as Job and Habakkuk. If God is just, and if God is almighty, then why do wickedness and injustice seem to prevail? This question plagues us at times. Why would a a Christian school in Nashville, or any school for that matter, be again the target of a shooting? Why would God allow my loved one, a a faithful Christian, to die at such a young age? If God is all-powerful, why is Christianity under attack? 
Why does injustice seem to prevail in the world? In the book Christ and the Psalms, the author Patrick Henry Reardon notes, however, that, that this very question is radically at odds with our modern world. I think about it, a characteristic of our modern society is that uh, there's a growing disbelief that there is an objective order in the world, that there is such a thing as objective morality, a true right or wrong, or, or, or that creation or the order of things have anything to do with reality or with wickedness or goodness. Whatever's right is it's just whatever's best for you. You know, we live in a time when justice is whatever a given culture determines justice to be. Reality is not based in creation or created things, but only determined by your experience, by what you think. Justice, then, is whatever the culture collectively decides. So if a society approves or, or disapproves or, or prefers a certain kind of behavior, then, then that automatically becomes just. That's just what everybody's doing. It's right. And it's completely untethered from reality. And so if that's the case, and, and that is predominantly what's being taught today, then there can be no such thing as injustice or even evil. If, if correct behavior is whatever the cultural norms are, there can be no injustice. Because whatever, whatever becomes popular in a society, whatever prevails is automatically just if society is the sole and ultimate arbiter of justice. And so the author says that in a world where the only presumed rule is the survival of the fittest, why would anyone anticipate that justice and goodness would prevail? In other words, what's surprising today is not that wickedness prevails, but that goodness would prevail at all. If the path to gaining glory or getting ahead means that I need to be just a little unjust, a little selfish, well, that's what I'm going to do. We're at a time when actively living as a Christian, going to church on Sunday, not affirming sin, living a chaste life, not being greedy or worrying when the banks are crashing, these things are not popular or the prevailing things. We may be treated unjustly for these things. And so there's a great temptation when we see wickedness prevailing that we just give in. Again, it's, it's amazing. Even when I look at myself with my own selfish mind, that goodness prevails at all, even, even in me. We want glory. And if we believe that this glory can be reached on earth, well, only a fool would prefer justice. Only a fool would be a Christian. You do not get ahead in the world or gain glory by being a follower of Jesus. And so the fact that we wonder why evil happens is not proof of God's absence, but of God's reality. Because the only way to presume what is truly good is to actually have objective morality coded into the fabric of the world by a creator. 
Someone has to be the author of morality. Otherwise, you can't say that a shooting is evil. The best you can say that it's not culturally acceptable here. But Christians can call such things evil. We actually can call evil, evil. But we can also call good, good. So with the psalmist, when we see evil, we know that this is not how it's supposed to be. It's a crisis. We can have these things happen in our own lives because we know that, we also know, but because we also know God, and because we know that God is good, we trust that this crisis has already been worked through. The psalm begins with this affirmation. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. As Jesus traveled along his path, he would be humbled. He would humble himself. It's part of his humiliation. He would allow himself to suffer, to be mocked and ridiculed, to be hated and persecuted for good. His feet would slip and stumble as he would be beaten and then made to carry his own cross. St. Paul says that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. When the psalmist thought how to understand all this suffering, he says, it was too painful for me. It was too painful for me to understand all this suffering until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. Only by the light of God's word can we understand evil. Justice cannot be found in our own eyes, otherwise everything will be relative. What's good for you will be good for you, but not maybe for other, uh, everyone else. True justice can only be seen through God's eyes. Only through the lens of the cross can we see true glory. Jesus' death on the cross is the glory of God. This is how our salvation was won. Those shouts of Hosanna, save us, are fulfilled as Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross. Justice is won through the injustice of the cross. Truth prevails through lies. Life comes from death. Glory comes from the cross. At the heart of Psalm 73, there's this phrase. And again, hear this in the voice of Jesus. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You, God, hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Glory comes after the suffering. True life comes after death. It, it may be difficult, but it will come. And the entire way, God will be with us. He will hold us by our right hand. So learn from Jesus to bear the cross, to, to, to bear suffering. 
And, and so because we know what happens after our present suffering, because we know there is glory to come, it means we can actually humble, humble ourselves along with Jesus. Our path is the same as Jesus as it was today. We follow him. In fact, we, we may start our lives as Christians thinking, well, this is going to be pretty great. I won't have to suffer. I'm a Christian now. But then 1,969 steps later or, or thereabouts or, or, or somewhere down the road, we begin to realize that the Christian life is not a walk in the park. Even though our minds have difficulty comprehending suffering because Jesus walked this path first, we can do as St. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. And afterward, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those of heaven, in heaven of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because we're not fighting for the scraps of worldly glory. And because God has given us this world, and we have nothing to fear ultimately, not even death, because Christ's death defeated our own death, uh, uh, defeated our great enemies of sin, death, and the devil. We can follow Christ and do what is good, what is just, not for our neighbor, but for the or not, not for ourselves, not for our own good, but for our neighbor. So whatever job or vocation you have, you can use it, not for your own good, but for the good of those you're called to serve. You can humble yourself and be a good salesman, a good engineer, a good farmer, a good cook, a good spouse or parent, not for yourself, but for your neighbor. You may not get any glory now, but by the grace of God declared yours, by Jesus' humiliation, suffering, and death. The glory comes after. And no matter what you suffer in the meantime on your path, God will be with you. He will hold you by your right hand. And one day when you do suffer the pangs of death, even though your heart and your flesh may fail because Jesus suffered the pangs of death for you while he was alive, God is your strength. He's the strength of your heart and your portion forever to eternal life. Even through the path of suffering and death with Jesus as your guide, God will receive you afterward to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.